If you're new to the valley or new to Rockfish, what we like to do here is go through books of the Bible and see what God has said to us there. Recently, we've been making our way through the book of Mark. Well, I say recently, but over the last year or so, we've made our way through the book of Mark and we've come all the way up to chapter 12 and we're gonna cover verses 38 through 44 this morning. To give you a little bit of context, if you haven't been with us, this is Passover week and all the way back in chapter 11 this week began with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, signaling his messianic sonship, signaling his messianic identity. And he came down the hill and into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna in the highest and blessed is the son of David. If you remember, he went into the temple and he didn't do anything. He left. Uh, and then the next day on his commute, he came back to the temple. He, he cursed it. Then he returned to the temple yet again on the next day and refused to answer the questions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians about where his authority came from. He also condemned those that would stand against him. He told a prophetic parable and said that any who reject him, he put himself in the parable as the cornerstone and as the beloved son, anybody that would reject him would be crushed by him ultimately. Then there were three challenges to his authority, which we've seen over the last few weeks. They challenged his authority in the temple courts by way of questioning him. They tried to undermine him. First, they wanted to undermine him and set him up against Rome by asking him a question about taxation. And it was a political question, really. And Jesus masterfully uh, stepped out of that one. He said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Then they sent the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they sent the Sadducees to him and they tried to trip him up with a uh, reductio ad absurdum with a question about the resurrection and they asked him that question if a woman on earth through the concept of leveret marriage uh, marries the first guy, he dies and so the next brother steps in, she marries him and he dies and on down the line until seven brothers have all had her as a wife. They said, Who's, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus tells those guys that, hey, you've got the resurrection life all wrong. You've thought about this completely wrong. It's even in the books, because the Sadducees only considered the Pentateuch to be holy and inspired, if you remember. You've got this all wrong, and even in the Pentateuch, you see the concept of resurrection. When you die, it's not all over. You see, my friends, uh, they, there is no marriage in heaven. And then Jesus went on to say, he said, furthermore, you've read in Exodus, right? You, you guys know the story about the bush when God's speaking to Moses and he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus points out simply that those uh, proclamations of God come in the present tense. He pointed out that God doesn't make promises that are temporal or puny. He makes real lasting, life-altering, valuable promises. And Jesus made good on showing them the validity of these promises by way of finishing his answer and his explanation of the resurrection life. He gave them the, the final answer when he rose from the grave. Last week, we saw a man come to Jesus and ask him a very important question. He asked him, what commandment supersedes all other commandments? Which commandment has all the other ones wrapped up in itself? Which is the greatest commandment? 
And Jesus answered with not a new command or a new saying, but with an old one, with the Shema, which every Jewish person would have known. He said, hear, oh, this is the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one you shall love him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul. And then he quickly adds, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the whole law and the prophets. And then the Pharisee, the lawyer, the scribe, lawyer, who was questioning him, uh, he, he said, yes, yes, Jesus, you, you have answered well. And, and, and Jesus comes back at him and says, yeah, I, I did. And you're not far from the kingdom of God. And we discussed whether that was Jesus rebuking him or encouraging him. And I kind of came down in the middle and said it was a little bit of both. He was encouraging him to continue along the trajectory that he was on, to continue on towards Christ. And then at the same time, it was a little bit of a rebuke. He was saying to him, hey man, you are not thinking rightly. You're thinking rightly, sorry. You're not thinking rightly, but you haven't believed yet. You're not there yet. You're not far from the kingdom. And we said to be not far from the kingdom was to be not in the kingdom. And to be outside of the kingdom is to be too far from the kingdom. And so Jesus continued in his teaching, and we covered this last week, and he asks not a good question, not an important question, but the greatest question. You see, he brings up the identity of the Messiah. And we said, this is the greatest question we can answer in life. What is the identity of the Messiah? And we stated it differently and said, who is Jesus? And Jesus, by way of appealing to Psalm 110, there you see, says, how can the son, or how can David say to his son that you are my Lord. He's pointing out that the son of David, the Messiah that is to come, isn't just simply human. He isn't just simply David's son, but he is David's sovereign and that he is also divine, a God-man, if you will. And Jesus says that with a wink and a smile and implies that it's him. And all the people, all the crowds heard him gladly. And that brings us up to verse 38, which is what we're going to cover this morning. So for everybody that's tuned out for uh, the context, you can tune back in now. And uh, we're going to start taking apart this text in, in just a moment. You know, a few years ago, I attended the wedding shower uh, for a good friend of mine when I was still living in Raleigh. And naturally, food and drink were provided along with some delectable-looking desserts. And, and one particularly mouth-watering offering caught my attention. Even though the selection was wide and grand and, and the presentation was near perfect, it was this one morsel that had all of my focus. And so when it came time for dessert, I surveyed the table quickly and, and found what I had already uh, picked out before the, the thing even started. And, and I quickly procured a knife and began cutting myself a slice, at which point I was immediately confronted with something awful. To my horror, I discovered that this was no cake at all. It was an imposter. Some wicked, cruel, evil servant of the devil had carved up a watermelon, covered it with Cool Whip, and shaped it to appear as a cake. Awful. I was stuck eating a fruit that looked like a cake instead of actual cake. Looks can be 
deceiving. Looks can be deceiving. Things and people are not always as they seem. And in our text today, Jesus is going to teach us just that. And he's also going to show us what a healthy relationship with God looks like by pointing not to the religious leaders as we would expect, but to an unlikely model of discipleship. So our main idea today is that Jesus can tell phony followers from true disciples. Jesus can tell phony followers from true disciples. And my goal is to exhort you to rebel against the status quo and selfishness by becoming strange and going all in with Jesus. To rebel against the status quo and selfishness by becoming strange and going all in with Jesus. We'll cover it in two parts, the status quo and the strange. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would set your spirit on us this morning, that you would unite us in the bond of love, that you would stir up within us a passion for your word, a holy passion for one another, God, that we would live out the reality of what you've done inside of us, God, that we would be becoming in practice what you have declared us to be in truth, which is holy, which is like Christ. Make us more like Christ this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And in his teaching, he said, verse 38, in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long Prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus is warning against following the teaching and the lifestyle of the scribes because they do not understand what scripture teaches about the Messiah, which is clear from last week when Jesus pointed to their messianic ignorance in verses 35 through 37. So they don't understand who the Messiah is, nor do they understand the heart of the law. Well, maybe they understand it from a knowledge standpoint, but they are not living it out practically. They're denying that by their lifestyle. And so they missed both the Messiah and the point of the law. And Jesus' description of their inner lives as he pulls back the veil here shows us why. We, we learn from these verses that the scribes are selfish and that they crave a recognition for fame. They crave recognition and fame. Despite, despite this fact, these men still look the part of religious leaders. Right Under, underneath all of the veneer, underneath the long robes, they're really just about themselves, not about the God that they allegedly serve. They walk the street in their full-length robes and their showy tassels to distinguish themselves as men of wealth and eminence. They sit front and center during synagogue in the place of honor near the host of banquets and they pray to impress people rather than to be impressed upon by the holy God of the universe. They want people to know them, to admire them, to honor them, right? They want titles to come their way that fit their significance. They insist that others call them rabbi and master, and in some cases, as Matthew points out, even father. They look the part, but looks can be deceiving. 
These religious leaders, they're focused on fame and so they play their roles and leverage their careers to that end, but fame isn't all that they lust after. They also long for financial gain. Jesus comments when he says, who devour widows' houses. See, we're not being told that that these guys have a penchant for literally eating entire estates of people as, as if those houses were made of gingerbread, but that these scoundrels were guilty of taking advantage of the weak and the vulnerable in society. See, unlike the Sadducees, for example, the scribes, they, they're not wealthy as a rule. And so what they did was they took advantage of those in a weaker position or weaker station than themselves. They were largely dependent on gifts of worshipers and benefactors for their livelihood. And so they exploited those who held them in high esteem and would abuse the generosity that was shown to them by others. They devoured widows' houses. So any compassion that they had for widows or the weak, was often fueled by greed. Greed always blinds you to the need of others. What I, do, what I do think is interesting is that these scribes seemed to live what would actually be pretty normal American lives. What I mean is this is they sought after fame and financial gain. They sought to be rich and famous. The quest for fame and fortune in our culture, it's pretty infamous. It's pretty prevalent. It permeates almost any area of media or culture. I mean, it's the air we breathe. It's normal to be self-centered in our society. Self-esteem, pride, and faith in oneself have become the status quo. Selfishness and getting yours have somehow become virtuous. Today, chasing your own glory has become tantamount to chasing your dreams and following your heart. It's normal. And I know I quoted him last week, but I I can't help but quote him again here. I think 50 Cent, the, the rapper, captures the anthem of our culture when he says, get rich or die trying. I also quoted Oscar Wilde last week who said, when I was young, I thought that money was the most important thing in life. Now that I'm old, I know it is. The way we've come to naturally measure success is with dollars. Net worth has become the equivalent to actual worth. Consequently, in this environment, the temptation to prove one's value through performance is it's very real. We're prone to tell ourselves the lie. If I just get enough approval from the right people, just get recognized enough. If I, if I just get famous enough, if I, if I just get enough money, then I will have arrived. Be somebody. Be worth something. Be satisfied. I'll be successful. The problem is the fame monster is never satisfied. There is never enough money and satisfaction rooted in external, I'm sorry, there's never enough money and satisfaction that is rooted in external circumstances flees as quickly as cockroaches do from a kitchen light. I think the religious leaders in our text have simply bought into this lie. 
Get people to like you. Get money. You'll be happy. Others will deem you successful. And it's in this quest for fame and fortune that selfishness manifests. The temptation to try and prove your worth on the basis of the approval of others or on the numbers in your bank account is enduringly strong. I do wonder, have you ever dressed up to impress someone? Gain their approval? Have you ever insisted that somebody treat you according to your social or economic status? Maybe you made sure they knew that you were a doctor, so-and-so. Or you ensured that they knew you owned your own business or that you had a master's degree or some other trait that would distinguish you from everyone else. Perhaps some of us have even compromised our integrity for a little extra cash. And have you ever gained financially at somebody else's expense? Maybe fudged the numbers on your taxes? Greed is one of those sins that blinds us to the needs of others, but it also blinds us to the fact that we are greedy. Nobody ever thinks that they are guilty of the sin of greed. We ought to check our hearts. Have you taken advantage of the weak and the vulnerable to get yourself ahead? Maybe, maybe we don't take advantage of the poor to get ahead, but instead we simply neglect them. Do you, do you neglect the least of these? James says, one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. So we might ask ourselves, how are we involved with helping the poor? Proverbs 21.13 tells us, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. James again tells us, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Here's the point. People who neglect the poor are not the people of God. This is what I'm driving out, friends, is that we are not so different from the scribes because selfishness is easy. It's comfortable. And self-centeredness, it's the, it's the default position of the human heart. The hypocritical quality that defines the system of scribal snobbery described by Jesus, it's just as indigenous to us as it was to them. We are all selfish and sinful. This warning of Jesus, it's, it's twofold for us. All right, let's, let's not miss it. Let's look at it. I think first the warning is, don't be like the scribes. And then the second is, don't follow leaders that are like the scribes. And so in order to heed this warning, we must ask ourselves two questions. Do I selfishly seek after my own glory? Do I follow others who are selfishly seeking after their own glory? Glory. 
Brothers and sisters, God knows your heart. He knows those that are genuine followers of him. God knows the phonies from the faithful. And he will judge false Christians and false teachers harshly. It's important to note here that Jews would have greatly revered their religious leaders and thought that a healthy relationship with God looked like the lives of these ostentatious scribes. But Jesus' warning here clearly demonstrates that looks can be deceiving. It might look like that we need to follow these religious leaders over here, but Jesus is saying no. He sees deeper and he's going to point us to someone else, to an unlikely model of discipleship. And so we turn our attention to verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contribute out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had to live on. After telling everyone that the current religious leaders are not to be followed or trusted, Jesus sits down where he can observe people giving their money into the treasury. This, this temple treasury was located in the court of the women. It was called the court of the women because it was the furthest point in the temple that women could go to at the time. And this first enclosure in the sanctuary also allowed children and, and it was a place of worship. And so the, the Jewish Mishnah tells us uh, about this place and it reports that there were 13 receptacles in the temple and they were each designed to receive a different type of of offerings. And so if you can imagine these 13 offering boxes lined up one next to another across a wall, and they're all shaped like a ram's horn. Not like the, the curly Q1. That's what I thought initially. But after some Googling and some studying, uh, I learned to think more like a, I don't like a bull's horn, maybe. I, I don't know. I think maybe like a war horn if you saw the Hobbit. But th the point is it's trumpet-like, okay? And so folks would come and deposit their gifts into the appropriate box with no small amount of clanging. You get the idea there's no uh, paper money in the day. And so when you put your coins in, everything was in coinage. When you put lots in, it made lots of noise. So the trumpet-like receptacles would, would trumpet the amount of money you put in in, in a lot of ways. And so when you made a deposit, it was heard throughout the court. Consequently, the, the more you gave, the bigger noise you would make, and of course, the greater attention you would draw. And Jesus watched as many rich people were putting in large sums. The rich and the powerful and the influential, they're giving a lot because they have a lot. No, no doubt the surrounding crowds would have been impressed. Qu quick, quick note here before we continue. The point of this passage, it's not to say that it's wrong to be wealthy or to have money or to give generously to the cause of Christ. The text in no way is saying it's bad to give large offerings. So if you're wealthy and you like to give large offerings, welcome. In fact, the church needs those that have much to steward their resources wisely and to give much. 
It's important. Anyhow, you can, you can picture this scene in the temple as uh, people watch others give into the receptacles and, and listen to them give. All kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds, putting their money into the treasury. And if you're like me, you can imagine sitting in the court and making a sort of, sort of a game of the whole thing with your buddies, trying to uh, anticipate or guess how much somebody was going to put in there. I bet this fellow puts in a ton. It's going to clang. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be funny, man. Whose offering will make the most noise, his or hers? Who do you got? So imagine yourself sitting there and watching and listening and being impressed with the various gifts and givers. You catch in the corner of your eye a poor widow whose clothing has clearly seen better days. You think to yourself sarcastically, this should be an impressive gift. Then you listen hard with your hand cupped to your ear as she puts in her gift with the slightest tink tink. You sit smugly, trying not to snicker at the near silence of her worthless donation. Jesus is there watching too, sitting next to you. He observes many rich people putting in large sums. No doubt that we, along with the surrounding crowds, would be impressed. I mean, those guys impress everyone, but Jesus isn't impressed. He's not impressed with the large gifts or the rich. They give a lot because they have a lot. Maybe some of them even get tax breaks. I don't know. What impresses Jesus is not the, the $2 million offering, but the two-cent offering, the two-lepta of a widow. A lepta was the smallest bronze coin in circulation at Palestine, in Palestine during the time. Two of them equaled one sixty-fourth of a Roman denarius, which was a day's wage for a typical laborer. So two lepta were worth about five minutes of work or next to nothing. So what her gift could actually buy, uh, she might as well have given nothing, right? This offering of nothing, though, is what seizes Jesus' attention in such a way that he calls his disciples to himself. So imagine you're sitting next to Jesus. You've just played this game. You just held back your snicker. Jesus calls these guys to himself, his disciples. He says, did you, did you see that? You're overhearing your eavesdropping. Did you see that she just put in more than everyone else? She gave all she had to live on. See, out of his mind, she put in two lepta. God's economy is different. Why is Jesus impressed? Why does he call the attention to the widow? Why, why does Mark record it for us? I think because looks can be deceiving. God's economy is markedly different from our own. Jesus sees the smallest act, the smallest motive. He knows the depths of every human heart. And he evaluates justly. This account confronts us and it challenges our cultural beliefs about greatness and about giving. If we're to look honestly at this episode without Jesus' commentary and decide who we would like to be like, I'm pretty certain most of us would answer the rich and the powerful, not the widow who doesn't have a whole lot. 
And I don't think the ideals of the world have changed so much. I think the Jews likewise would have shared our position, especially in light of the Old Testament promises that actually do pertain to material blessing. I think then the Jews right next to us would have believed that the rich and the powerful were those that most pleased God. We would have all fought together. The models of a healthy relationship with God were the well-dressed and the well-connected. Together with the Jews, I think we would be likely to look to the scribes and the so-called religious leaders as examples of discipleship. I think this is why Jesus calls attention to the poor widow. He wants us to see her as an example of true discipleship in contrast to the scribes. We might ask this question, what does a healthy relationship with God look like? And I think we could answer by looking at the widow, this model that Jesus is pointing out to us, that a healthy relationship with God looks like giving him everything. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength looks like going all in with every area of your life, including finances. It's going all in. It's a sacrificial love for God. And it appears strange to the world. A healthy relationship with God looks like this, this poor widow. Do note here, I, I want to point out, we're not told about the widow's spiritual status. Don't know if she knows Jesus or not. I mean, we do hope that she came to know him if she didn't. Uh, but regardless of her kingdom status, Jesus is holding her out as an example in contrast to the scribes versus having us just evaluate her personhood or her, her moral um, quality. Notice, too, I say in contrast to the scribes, those giving large amounts, are, they're not spoken of negatively here. We're just told that they give less than the widow, which, which isn't a bad thing. But this does bring us to an important observation. It seems that in God's economy, it's not the amount of a gift that makes it valuable, but its proportion. As Wearsby has written, it's not the portion, but the proportion that is important. For example, if we were to speculate about percentages of offerings, we might say that the rich put in 10% or one-tenth of what they had to live on, whereas the widow put in 100% or ten-tenths of what she had to live on. She gave more. Dr. Aiken comments, the rich and the others gave out of their surplus. Their giving was not sacrificial, it was comfortable. Did they truly give God their best? No. They gave what was easy and convenient. Jesus was not impressed. The widow, on the other hand, gave her whole livelihood. That means everything. Friends, remember, there are no Costco's. There are no Sam's Clubs. She hasn't been buying in bulk over the last few years. She hasn't been stocking up on grains and toiletries. She's not on that show, Doomsday Preppers, right? She's putting in her livelihood. She's laid her life down in the treasury. Others gave their spare change. She gave all her change. Her change was less than everyone else's, but she put in more than everyone else. They all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything. She had all she had to live on. 
When I was growing up, my favorite Christmas was one in particular when I received a ton of gifts. That Christmas morning, my sister and I opened presents for what felt like a week. It was an incredible amount of fun, though I don't think I can remember a single item that I received. Now that I'm older, I've come to cherish that Christmas even more. I was clueless at the time, but it wasn't a great season for my family financially. And my parents had worried that my sister and I would be disappointed with our gifts because neither of us had received any of the high ticket items that we had requested. However, to their surprise, we were quite thrilled. You see, what had happened was they purchased a great many low-cost items at the dollar store and wrapped them up alongside some essential items like clothing and toothbrushes and shoes. Never knew the sacrifice that my parents had to make for us to have Christmas, to just have some presents under the tree that year. I loved it at the time. But now that I, I know the, the sacrifice that they had to make, that particular Christmas means even more to me. Knowing their sacrifice, knowing that it cost them something to give to me has exponentially increased my appreciation for that Christmas. Their sacrifice to give has somehow made their gift greater. The essence of giving is sacrifice. Sacrificial giving serves as an eternal investment and it honors Jesus. This poor widow goes all in. She had excuses readily available to justify not giving anything at all, but she gives all of it anyway. I do want to point out, we're not talking about reckless behavior here, but rebellious behavior. We don't, we don't know what happened to the widow, whether she starved to death soon after this event or if her son was waiting to take her home to, to his place, give her some soup and to put a blanket on her, care for her. I mean, I don't, we don't know. What we do know is that she's an example of what it means to give cheerfully and to go all in on Jesus. Other examples from Scripture, they let us know that this isn't a call for all of us to give every last penny of our money to the church next week. We see Zacchaeus give away half of his money and be commended, and we see throughout the early church people of means providing houses and meeting places and helping to finance the spread of the gospel. Uh, furthermore, 1 Timothy 5.8 tells us, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially the members of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We are to be wise, not reckless. However, these other examples don't give you an excuse to be stingy. They don't give you an excuse not to have the heart of the poor widow. They don't point them out so we can together say, whew, give away a good bit of my money. In addition to the other things I do for the kingdom and around the church, plus I got to provide for my family so you know I'm good. I don't need to evaluate my finances. Friends, when it comes to money, are you looking for excuses not to give? What about your time? Do you look for excuses not to come to church? Not to be around the people of God? That's greed. Do you use your family as an excuse for greed? 
Have you determined in your heart that you give 10% away to the church and so that you never have to think about it again? Are you right now trying to think of various ways in which you have given of your time, talent, and treasure so as to dismiss evaluating the stewardship of your resources? Jesus holds this woman up as a model of discipleship so that we can learn from her. He wants us to follow her example by going all in. Again, we're not talking about reckless behavior here, but rebellious behavior. And when I say rebellious behavior, I mean rebelling against the status quo of our culture and obeying Christ. I mean defying the world's command that says get rich or die trying and following Jesus' command to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I mean revolting against the lie that money is the most important thing in life and believing with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Church, rebel against the status quo. Become strange. Rebel against selfishness. Go all in with Jesus. Letting the gospel shape your life and especially your finances will seem strange and foolish to those outside of Christ. It will earn you some sideways looks. But if Jesus is telling us the truth about who he is and about the kingdom of God, our life planning ought to be about the next trillion years and beyond. We ought to steward our resources now with eternity in view. However, if we assume that what's waiting for us beyond the grave is a postlude, no life after life, rather than a mission and an adventure, we will cling tenaciously to the status quo, to that which is normal, or at least the parts of it we like. If we think that the kingdom of God will be boring, we will live as if the slogan, whoever dies with the most toys wins, is true. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is alive. And he's commissioned us to represent him here on earth. He's commanded us to take the gospel to every corner of the globe. To display his glory in community with one another. He has called us and equipped us to wage war against the present darkness. He's told us to be the light of the world. It's time for us to wake up rub the sleep away from our eyes and realize that there are real battles to be fought, that there are infinitely more important things in your life, in our lives, than money and social status. I fear that we have become worldly in our habits and in our thinking. Dr. Moore writes, to be worldly means to be shaped and patterned by the world around us. Guilty. Worldliness makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. I fear that often our lives and our churches are shaped and patterned more by the world than Christ. To the observer, they may seem, our churches may seem like normal, everyday businesses ultimately concerned with their bottom line. And we may seem as employees. 
president of the Southern Baptist Convention's International Mission Board, David Platt, captures the cost of our worldliness, the cost of our, our failure to be strange and to go all in with Jesus. He captures this in his book, Radical. He, he writes in a section, I remember when I was preparing to take my first trip to the Sudan in 2004. A couple of months before we left, I received a Christian news publication in the mail. The front cover had two headlines side by side. On the left, one headline read, First Baptist Church Celebrates $23 million Building. Lengthy article followed, celebrating the church's expensive new sanctuary. The exquisite marble, intricate design, and beautiful stained glass windows were all described in vivid detail. On the right, there was a much smaller article. The headline for it read, Baptist Relief Helps Sudanese Refugees. Knowing I was about to go to the Sudan, my attention was drawn. The article described how 350,000 refugees in western Sudan were dying of malnutrition and might not live to the end of the year. It briefly described their plight and their sufferings. The last sentence said that Baptists had sent money to help relieve the suffering of the Sudanese. I was excited until I got to the amount. Now remember, on the left, First Baptist Church celebrates new $23 million building. On the right, the article said Baptists have raised $5,000 to send to refugees in western Sudan. $5,000. It's not enough to get a plane to Sudan, much less one drop of water to the people who need it. $23 million for an elaborate sanctuary and $5,000 for hundreds and thousands of starving men, women of children and children, most of whom were dying apart from faith in Christ. Where have we gone wrong? How did we get to this place where this is actually tolerable? Indeed, the cost of non-discipleship is great. The cost of believers not taking Jesus seriously is vast. It's vast for those who don't know Christ and devastating for those who are starving and suffering around the world. Friends, are we being good stewards of God's money? Church, our, our finances ought to appear bizarre to the world. I wonder, do they? Everything, and I, I mean everything, ultimately belongs to God, and we are going to be accountable for how we use it. I also want to caveat here. God isn't after your money, so don't hear me be saying that. God's not after your money, he's after your heart and part of how you express your affection for him, part of how you steward well your resources is by giving gifts into the building and the furthering of the kingdom. It's an act of obedience, but God doesn't need your money. He owns everything. I think, it, I think it's Kuiper, Kuiper who says, uh, there's not anything in all of creation over which Jesus doesn't declare mine. It's all his. Everything you have it's akin to a father when he gives a child money to buy himself a birthday gift, right? Parent gives money to kids so a kid can buy parent a birthday gift. God expects us to steward it wisely, to give it back to him, to use it for his glory, for his good. Not so that we show back up at our house with our pockets turned out, no money in our tummies full of ice cream. It's all his. Every, every spending decision 
is a spiritual decision. You're deciding how you will use your money. It's a tool to be used for the glory of God, not a God, small g, to be served. As stewards, we have a great, a great deal of latitude, but we're still responsible to the owner. We're still responsible to God. Someday we're going to have to give an account for how we have used his property. Let us look forward to giving that account to God. Let's look forward to giving an account to God for how we stewarded his resources. Let us give cheerfully and generously of our time, talents, and treasure. Let's be more committed to gathering together on Sundays and being in community with one another throughout the week than ever before. Let's refuse to neglect participating in the fellowship God has placed us in here at RVBC. Let's continue to give to the flourishing of this church as we love one another, share the gospel in our community and champion the cause of Christ. Let's continue to give to the furthering of the of Christ Church in the United States by supporting church plants like Uptown Church in Martinsville. Let's continue to give to the equipping of the church by supporting our Southern Baptist seminaries. Let's continue to give to the poor by supporting crisis pregnancy centers and participating in sensible benevolence. Let's continue to give to the spread of the gospel into the places where Jesus' name has never been known by supporting the International Mission Board. Let us strive to accomplish the mission of Christ, always thinking of ways that we might better give individually and corporately of our time, of our money, of our talents. Church, let us rebel against the status quo and become strange. Let us rebel against selfishness and go all in with Jesus. Let us have hearts that say together with Paul, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. A good way to do this is by following the example of this poor widow in our text and going all in. She lays her whole livelihood down in the treasury. And this giving of her finances foreshadows the greatest giving that has ever been done, the most sacrificial gift the world will ever know. It foreshadows Jesus' giving of himself. Her giving should remind us of his giving, her pouring out of her entire life's Worth, her entire net worth, should remind us of Jesus pouring out of all of his blood. It should remind us of his living a perfect life on our behalf, dying a perfect death as our substitute. It should remind us of his resurrection and of his reign that he gave up heaven to come to earth to die for us so that we could inherit that which only rightfully belongs to him. He's made us sons and daughters. What a generous God. What a gift. Her gift, her giving, should remind us of his giving and propel us into our own sacrificial giving so that all may know the joy of knowing Jesus. So that all may know the height and depth and length and width of the love of God. In closing, I'd like to share with you something I wrote. In October of 2013, a few months after I began serving as your pastor, today I visited a widow who will be 91 on November 21st. 
and she will likely never read this post. I found myself discouraged as I made my routine journey to her home with my wife and young child. We were greeted at the door with a smile and invited to sit in the living room as usual. We passed our son to her as usual, and we talked as usual. My heart was warmed as usual. Making our way to the door after a short prayer, the old woman stopped us and insisted we take two apples she had set aside just for that purpose. She's not a wealthy woman, but each time we come to visit, it's clear she's exceedingly rich. Those two apples cut me to the heart. They humiliated me, but it was a good humiliation. A humiliation that was welcomed from a woman who has spent a lifetime following the Lord Jesus Christ. She doesn't have a seminary degree or read well. But every time I visit her, I can tell that she has been with Jesus. She's always looking to give generously. I'm humiliated because I do have a seminary degree and I do read well. But it's not always evident that I've been with Jesus. And too often I have not. My visits are supposed to be my giving and ministering to her. But more often than not, I end up the one that is given and ministered to. Two apples reminded me that I needn't worry or be discouraged, but that I should take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Two apples reminded me of why I want to give my life, my everything to Jesus, because he's given everything for me and he is worthy. I'm not sure why, but the widow's two apples brought to my mind another widow's two coins. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Both widows give as an expression of love for God and for neighbor. Both reminded me that Christ is truly all. Everything is his and should be utilized for his glory. Today, I'm thankful for widows. Church, does our giving demonstrate that we have been with Jesus and that we believe and are focused on the mission that he has charged us with? Let's be strange. Let's be about the kingdom of God. Let's be all in with Jesus. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you this time that we have to spend together sitting under the teaching of your word and its implications for our lives. Pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply your word to our lives, that you would be changing us even now. And that you would make our deepest desires equivalent or the same as your deepest desires. That our heartbeats would beat in step with your own. That we would long to give sacrificially so that others might know you and know the sacrifice you have made on Calvary's cross. God, you are so good to us. We give you thanks, we give you praise, we give you glory. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.